Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carlin Appy, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much for joining us. I just spoke with Joel Isaac about his new book, Working Knowledge, Making the Human Sciences from Parsons to Kuhn, that was published with Harvard University Press in 2012. Now, this is a contribution to the history of science, but also to the history of social thought, the history of philosophy, and many other fields besides. What Isaac is doing in this book is offering a corrective to the way the history of thought to intellectual history, the history of philosophy and the social sciences is often written. And that is with an approach that focuses on the development of ideas and the development of isms, rather than the development of attitudes toward practice. What Isaac shows in this book is the centrality of practices, craft, pedagogy, and so on and so forth in the development of some of the what we consider to be the major ideas in the history of the human sciences and in the development further of the human sciences in particular as a field and as a set of engagements and inquiries. So it's a major methodological contribution uh, to a number of fields in that respect. Isaac does this by focusing on the context of Harvard University in the 20th century and showing the presence of what he calls an interstitial academy. This is so interstitial in the sense of the space between grains of sand, right? The margins, the spaces in between. What this is, is essentially a way to describe the kinds of intellectual and social spaces that exist outside of the confines of official departments. So in discussion groups, in informal seminars, in places like the Society of Fellows, and and so on and so forth. And he's showing how these contexts actually allowed the emergence of dominant discourses of the human uh, sciences in many ways. The story culminates in what is, I think, an extraordinarily fresh reading of one of the classics of the history of science and of uh, social thought in general, and that is Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Along the way, there are very detailed and very carefully argued case studies uh, that look at different contexts within this interstitial academy at Harvard that developed some of the major ideas and major figures that we think about when we think about the history of human sciences in America. So it's very well written. It's very carefully argued. Um, There are moments uh, in the book that didn't actually come up in our conversation um, that are actually also quite funny. So I direct your attention, listeners, if you can find it, to the case here where William James is talking about the device for whirling frogs in his office. Um, And so there are little points like that that are also just really funny and um, really fun. So it was a great conversation. I really learned a lot from the book and from talking with Joel about it, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Joel Isaac about his new book, Working Knowledge, Making the Human Sciences from Parsons to Kuhn. Welcome, Joel, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you for inviting me. 
My pleasure. So Joel, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to this field uh, that we might describe as modern American intellectual history in the first place? Sure. Um, well, uh, I don't know how interesting a story this will be, um, but it's certainly uh, important to me. So I um, I was uh, trained um, as an Americanist. I, I studied a lot of American um, history as an undergraduate. And um, then I came to Cambridge where I um, did my graduate work and got my PhD with an, inter- with an interest in American history. And um, something that uh, the history faculty in Cambridge was known for and is known for, actually, is um, study the, the study of intellectual history and in particular the history of social and, and political thought. And um, I guess pretty early on in my graduate work, I wanted to find a way of combining um, an interest, a broad, kind of broad gauge interest in American history with um, uh, the study of social and political thought. And so um, I... I, I kind of played around with ideas for a while um, on this score and was looking for a sort of way in. And uh, I have to admit, actually, that the, the thing that really drew me into studying the history of the social sciences, um, is something of an embarrassing confession in some ways, but um, was, uh, well, I read, the, the book itself is actually very good. Uh, it, was, it was later made into a film, but I, I read a book, a biography of the economist and game theorist John Nash Jr. called A Beautiful Mind. Um, uh, and uh, this was later made into a rather terrible movie starring Russell Crowe, which is the embarrassing part. Uh, but I read this book on um, the history of game theory and this very interesting conception of human rationality. And I became more and more interested in, I guess, um, formal approaches to the study of rationality and the role that could play in the formation of economic and social policy. And that drew me bit by bit into, in fact, some of the figures that I, I discuss in, in, in the book, uh, particularly Tucker Parsons and, and the project, the book kind of um, emerged from those initial interests, I'd say. Right. Now, the book at hand, the book that we're, we're talking about now, it shows ultimately how Thomas Kuhn's arguments in the structure of scientific revolutions emerged from a conversation, and as you show here, a long-forgotten conversation about the sources of knowledge and the validity of knowledge in the human sciences. But it's not just a story about Kuhn. Rather, it's a story that takes us through the emergence of the human sciences in the 20th century U.S. And so it manages, on the one hand, to be this very deep but very carefully argued history of the human sciences. And in the process, you're also managing to take a classic text in science studies. I mean, a text that everybody who studies the history of science or science studies in some ways has to read. And and amazingly, you're making it new and you're making it fresh, which is really, really impressive um, and just quite surprising as a reader who's really familiar with the structure of scientific revolutions to come to this and come away feeling like, um, you know, I understand it in a completely different way. So it's a great book. It's a great project. How did you come to this topic in particular? What brought you to this field? Sure. Um, firstly, thank you for those kind remarks. Um, and in fact, you know, it's it's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that, that you um, that you mentioned the things I have to say about Kuhn. I mean, he appears in the last chapter, but I feel like actually this 
this rereading of um, the structure of scientific revolutions really is, I mean, certainly for me, the kind of payoff of the of the history that I the, the the kind of deeper history that I give in the book of the development of the human sciences in the United States. Um, but in terms of the project, I mean, so. So I, I mentioned a moment ago that I became interested in formal conceptions of rationality, some of them connected with decision theory, others with kind of structural functionalist sociology. Um, I, I was interested in this in this kind of topic and interested in how um, these ideas had emerged in the 20th century United States. And so um, I went to I, I went for my sort of first substantial research trip to, to Harvard um, to work on, as as is the want of an historian, to work on the unpublished papers of of Talcott Parsons, this kind of towering figure in mid twentieth century American sociology and and social uh, and, and social thought. Um, and I began working on on these papers of of, of Parsons. And I discovered really um, this fascinating local tradition of thinking about um, the, I mean, to, you know, to use a, a sort of a, a fancy word, the, the epistemological foundations of the human sciences. Um, the, the kind of the, the, I was interested in in, in finding in, in Parsons's work and in his interaction with his colleagues at Harvard a longer tradition of thinking about the foundations of knowledge in in the human sciences. And what I began to do was partly, or in large part, through archives as well as through published work, to reconstruct this this tradition of thinking about the foundations of knowledge in the the human sciences or the social sciences, um, and. I began filling out that network, and a lot of the book really is 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 me filling out that network. But slowly, and this actually was for me quite a, a slow realization. Um, I realized that the structure of scientific revolutions was, in many respects, a distillation and also the terminal point of this tradition uh, of the human or social sciences at Harvard. Um, and it, it took a while for that idea to kind of click. I'd, or, I'd always read structure kind of separately. I was interested in the book, but only uh, kind of bit by bit, particularly by looking at Kuhn's footnotes, um, did I realize that, that kind of Kuhn was, was a part of this story. Um, so this is really, in a way, a, a long-winded way saying i started off focusing on this single figure parsons and then really through serendipity i discovered um this this local tradition or series of local debates about the foundations of knowledge in the human sciences that had i think a broader significance and so um i spent a good bit of try time trying to um develop that story and figure out who the important characters were um but it all really emerged from from the happenstance of working in the and the parsons papers in the harvard university archives and and discovering this what i like to think is a kind of previously obscured network and a previously obscured tradition of thinking about knowledge in the human sciences um so i hope that's a that's an answer to your question absolutely now this book actually originally began as a dissertation is that right Yes. Okay. So can you talk um, a little bit about that transition from dissertation to book? Were there any major challenges? Were there any major transformations? What was that process like for you? Yeah, um, there were uh, some very important uh, challenges and, and, and transformations in the project. Um, the in, in the dissertation, um, 
I didn't yet have a fully worked out sense of what I was, uh, in response to your previous question, describing as this this local kind of Harvard tradition of thinking about the foundations of knowledge. And in fact, the dissertation was less um, the study of uh, a coherent tradition or even a kind of institutional history. It was a comparative history of three different figures, um, one of whom dropped out of the book project altogether. Um, and that person is the the economist uh, Kenneth Arrow. Um, so I wrote a dissertation on uh, it was it was a somewhat uh, broader study of debates about the scientific status of the social sciences and of philosophy in uh, the middle decades of the twentieth century in the United States. And my central figures were. Tucker Parsons, the sociologist, Willard Van Orman Quine, um, the American philosopher and logician, and Kenneth Arrow, um, a very famed economist who's contributed to multiple fields of, of economics, um, but was most famous uh, in his early career for work on um, welfare economics and democratic theory. And so I'd written this comparative study for the dissertation. And I was sort of, um, I was, I realized it wouldn't work as a book quite early on, not least because the the kind of comparative element, while important, and I, and I hope sort of illuminating in certain respects, I don't think it fully cohered. And I felt like the book would need um, a much clearer narrative and that the, 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 PhD thesis was too episodic. And I also realized that this economist wasn't going to fit um, in the story that I had to tell. Um, and so, uh, to be honest, um, after finishing the PhD, um, I was I was kind of stuck uh, in a way, um, or at least there seemed to me multiple ways of, of proceeding with the project, maybe adding more figures for comparison um, and, as it were, kind of dialing up the episodic quality um, and just offering something like a survey or trying to find a way of, of telling a much more coherent historical story or a story of historical development. And I wanted to take the second approach. Um, and it took me a while to realize that um, Harvard, uh, Harvard University in the 20th century, was going to be um, really the kind of fulcrum of the study, that this would give me an institutional context from which to extract this kind of broader story about debates um, regarding the foundations of knowledge in the human sciences. Um, I'd recognized Quine, who was this um, other uh, figure of, of comparison in the thesis, had also been at Harvard, was there for his whole career, and uh, in fact taught, taught Talcott Parsons' son. Charles Parsons, who is an extremely distinguished philosopher of mathematics. Um, and that, just thinking about these kind of networks, um, got me uh, approaching more carefully the, the idea that there was this kind of coherent network at Harvard. And basically, I... Um, I finished the thesis and I had um, a postdoc, a, a research-based postdoc um, here uh, in, in the UK at Cambridge, actually. And I decided to not not scrap the thesis, but to sort of start again and to, and to draw up a, 
a project kind of from the ground up, but, but focusing on some of the same questions that I'd been interested in in the thesis. And so um, I spent um, a good bit of time in the US, um, off and on for about a year or so, working in the archives at Harvard and elsewhere. And drawing out the story of this network and thinking about its implications. And so um, what that meant, uh, to be honest, um, uh, in the longer term was I realized that I wasn't going to be able to move rapidly from the thesis to the book. Um, and I, I sort of realized that I'd, I'd have some time, partly thanks to the postdoc and partly for, for other reasons to do with the, uh, frankly, the pathologies of uh, the administration of higher education in the UK. Um <laughs> I might, I would have time to write a book and not not have the pressure of what's here called the research assessment exercise to have a book out quickly, and so um, so I kind of um, started again. I did more, uh, a lot more archival research, and um, it turned out that the only um, what remains of a thesis in the book really is um i have a chapter which which we may talk about later um on on the philosopher quine mm-hmm. that's the one part of the thesis that remains and, and everything else was kind of thought up more or less from scratch um after deciding that um i needed uh, a more coherent project for the book frankly so um so so that was um that was kind of uh challenging rewarding anxiety producing at certain moments um i went from a postdoc to a job and uh, as of course uh, everyone in academia knows you you lose a lot of research time when you're teaching things for the first time and so forth and so um it took me um another uh, six or seven years to to finish the book um so that so that was the i mean that's a uh a, a way of describing the um what for me at least felt like an odyssey from the from the thesis to the book that's great thank you so much for sharing that and i think um you're bringing up a few things that are really important and really interesting and i'll just sort of mention um one of them which is the increasingly the importance of the postdoc right after we finish i mean i i was very grateful to enjoy one of those as well. I think it's so important for giving us the space to be able to step away from the crush and the burnout of the the doctoral process and the dissertation. And clearly in this case, that and the, the extra time and the extra work that you put into refashioning the project really paid off because at the end of the day, this very much reads like a very careful and a very coherent argument that stretches throughout the whole book and that ultimately results in, as I mentioned before, a very surprising conclusion that manages to take. I mean, it's the equivalent of, for, for a historian of science, right, this may be somewhat hyperbolic, but I don't think it's too hyperbolic. It's the equivalent of sort of managing to say something new about Shakespeare, right? It's like, wow, I thought I knew this book, um, and I'm, this is making me see it in a new way. So, um, so thank you for sharing that. Sure. It clearly paid off. So the book itself, as we get into um, the chapters, what it does, as I mentioned, is it situates Kuhn within this larger context of 20th century philosophers and social sciences who were collectively part of this transformation, where a culture of inter- this culture of inquiry that they were part of was attempting to connect and successfully, I think you show at the end, connected both a philosophy of epistemology and also a concern with the practices of the sciences. 
And the thread binding these together, as you show early on in the book, is something uh, that you call scientific philosophy. Now, very early on in the book, there's a suggestion, and it's a very strong suggestion, and it's one you come back to at the end of the book, that we move beyond explanations of history of the sciences, history of social sciences, that rest on largely ideological battles between isms or over-isms, positivism, naturalism, historicism, etc., or over these large-scale issues of rationality and objectivity. You focus here, and you're very explicit about focusing your analysis on practice, not ideology. And ultimately, when we come to the end of the book, we'll see that a focus on and a very careful attention to practice was also what winds up generating um, the Kuhn's ideas and structure and many of the ideas that we see along the way. So I wonder if you um, could t- start us off by talking a little bit about that, this sort of this effort to help us move away from a focus on argument based on ideology and isms and toward arguments that put practice um, at the center stage. Um, Of the book already. It's, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's how I frame the book is, is, um, is, is, was and is extremely important to me. So I, I mentioned uh, earlier that I, um, I knew I wanted to write about the history of social thought and history of sciences in the United States. Um, But as I came to read the literature on the history of the social sciences, um, economics, sociology, psychology, and so on, um, I noticed um, that conceptions of knowledge, um, the conceptions of knowledge that fueled um, uh, the development of uh, these, you know, the disciplines of the social sciences um, tended to be read by historians um, in what I call in the book rather epic terms. Um, so there's a, there, there seemed to me to be um, a sort of conflation of uh, sort of epistemic uh, commitments about the character of um, knowledge and empiricism and so on, with more general views about, uh, really, I mean, with philosophical anthropology, views about human nature or human situation. Um, and it seemed to me that telling or reading sort of debates about the theory of knowledge in these very grand ideological terms in in terms of, you know, scientism, positivism, um, the dominance of empiricism in the modern intellectual culture of the West and so on, that that approach was um, leading historians, particularly of the 20th century human sciences, to miss these more practice-oriented local concerns that I think were also, and I tried to show in the book, were, were driving debates about knowledge and the developments of the human sciences in, in the 20th century. Um, and as I say, I felt like... Uh, a number of, of intellectual historians were um, neglecting practices by focusing on these ideological dimensions of knowledge. And it seemed to me that in doing this, the, the historians, and I, I mean, I, I don't mean to uh, at all denigrate the very important uh, contributions of, of earlier scholars and previous generation of historians of the, of the American social sciences, but just to say that it seemed to me uh, philosophers who'd written in historical vein, like Richard Rorty in Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, um, Charles Taylor in a number of essays, in particular in, in particular the sources of the self, 
the the intellectual historians had followed the philosophers um, in uh, relating what seemed to me quite local developments, um, local debates, or at least developments in modern philosophy, modern sociology, and so on, that had local explanations, conflating those developments with epic developments in, as I say, this is Taylor's phrase, the intellectual culture of the West, all these kind of broad terms. Um, uh, and it seemed to me that, uh, well, that was missing a lot of the historical context. And, and, and I, I know something I urge in the book is that uh, intellectual historians ought not to be uh, seduced by the epic histories of the human sciences offered by uh, Foucault and Rorty and Taylor as as important and brilliant in many respects as, as those kind of philosophical histories are. Um, and I, I sort of drew inspiration and, and encouragement um, for this kind of critique and this attempt to, to offer um, uh, a more fine-grained analysis of um, uh, the history of epistemology and the social sciences um, from from historians of science. And so the practice turn in the study of science inaugurated first, of course, in, in histories of experimental science, um, inaugurated by figures like Simon Schaffer, but more recently work on theoretical practices um, discussed by, you know, obviously David Kaiser, Peter Gallison and others, that, that this was... Uh, a, a literature that would be of, of importance for intellectual historians and it was of major importance uh, for me in in attempting to write this book and it, it seemed to me that um, the focus on on practice um, and on institutions pedagogy um, research practices and practices and so on would be an important antidote to these epic histories um, and I should just add to that general sort of point there um, this uh, this view of um, the problems of what can be lost with um, epic histories of knowledge is, is a point that was driven home for me by Joseph Rouse in his book Engaging Science I mean he, he makes uh, exactly that point really and so I felt like historians of the social sciences and histor- intellectual historians of the United States um certainly uh in my own case could learn a lot from the um study of experimental and theoretical practices in the history of science and so um a big part of how i frame the book and and how i see the book um contributing to um the fields that i know is is by is by appealing to that methodological approach honed in um history of science and in science studies thank you so much now as we move into the book You've mentioned uh, already specifically that your research focused on Harvard, and in fact, the argument of the book is also very much localized to what's happening at Harvard. At the beginning of the book in the first chapter, you invoke what you call the Harvard complex in describing the importance of Harvard to this history and to the story that you're going to tell. Can you talk about that notion um, to get us started along this route? What is the Harvard complex and, and why and in what way is that central to the story that you're telling? Sure. So um, the Harvard complex is is really a rubric um, that I invoke to um, to pick out a quite unusual institutional um, structure, or perhaps to put that 
um, slightly more clearly to pick out a set of they might be departments they might be reading groups um, they might be um, research laboratories in some cases um, but a particular cluster of institutional forms that existed um, either kind of on the margins of Harvard's sort of organizational chart during the middle decades of the, of the 20th century or in fact um, were themselves uh, very inchoate departments or um, or graduate schools. I mean, the Harvard Business School um, is another example for me of, of one institution that belongs to this Harvard complex. Um, but all of these, what I want to say is that they existed either between established departments or between levels of the university from the college to the graduate school, um, or they were reading groups um, of some sort or another, or kind of you know, faculty uh, seminars that... Um, that couldn't comfortably be um, slotted into um, into the main run of uh, university departments or into Harvard College and so on. Uh, now, this was this idea of the Harvard complex is is important because, as I argue in the book. It's, it's within these uh, marginal, um, I also call them kind of interstitial um, uh, fora, um, that the human sciences at Harvard, the, 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 uh, the philosophy and the social sciences um, develop and are ultimately institutionalized um, in the context of, of Harvard University. Um, and so um, that's really... Uh, a central part of the story. And again, it's something that just became clear to me as I was working on tracing out this network of thinkers in philosophy and the social sciences um, who were at work at Harvard during the middle decades of the 20th century, that a lot of them were involved in institutional innovation or they were pushed against their will to the margins of the university and had to fight to establish disciplines like sociology, for example. Um, And... And so I wanted, you know, a rubric um, or a kind of term to hang to hang that idea on, and, and the Harvard complex, and also this idea I bring up uh, a little bit later in the book of the of the interstitial academy, um, is my way of trying to offer a general category for those different kinds of institutional forms, which are a central part of my story in the book. Right. And this idea of the interstitial academy winds up being absolutely central to not just what's happening early in the book, but plays a role in each one of the chapters afterwards in, in which you show in different ways and using different, um, in, in most cases, different sets of figures and different case studies, the ways in which uh, this interstitial academy really created opportunities for the emergence of particular ways of focusing on practice, and in particular scientific practice, that ultimately leads to the configuration of the human sciences that uh, winds up by the epilogue um, turning into things like Institutes for Advanced Study and the National Humanities Center, which I'm at right now. So thank you, National Humanities Center. Um, So this winds up becoming a really powerful idea that helps us think through not just what happens at Harvard, but also this winds up being a kind of introduction to an early history of interdisciplinarity in the American Academy. Yeah. 
So as we move into these cases or into these sort of local um, local studies of the emergence of these ways of thinking, given this interstitial academy at Harvard, we move into some key players um, that form the backbone of this study and ultimately lead us to the end um, and the emergence of the structure of scientific revolutions. Chapter two focuses on the Harvard group devoted to the sociology of Wilfredo Pareto. So because Pareto's work, um, again, is not just important here, but becomes important in putting together the pieces later on, can you sort of briefly explain the nature of Pareto's work in 1916 and what what made that so important for um, the group at Harvard that was working with it and ultimately taking up Pareto's ideas? Sure. Um, well, uh, I mean, I... I should I should preface this by saying um, I, I sort of you know I, I treat Pareto's um, thought in the book somewhat at arm's length as it were I, I, I treat his thought through the work of the Pareto Circle, uh, so I wouldn't call myself Pareto, a Pareto scholar. But of course, it is important to to think about why, in particular, Pareto's treatise of general sociology um, become important. To, um, there's a, a major figure, the leader of the Pareto Circle, L.J. Henderson, is, is someone for whom Pareto is extremely important. But he, his work, Pareto's work is also discussed by, in fact, the young Tucker Parsons and many other figures, including George Homans and a, a number of pioneering American social scientists um, in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and so, as, as many of your listeners will know, um, Pareto comes to sociology in part because of um, his frustration with um, the limits to um, uh, the instrumental rationality that is described and is the premise of his work in in economics, um, and in particular in his work on um, general equilibrium in in economics. Um, Pareto feels himself needing, uh, in addition to his uh, account of instrumental rationality um an account of what um the translated uh, pareto calls non-logical behavior um and the uh tratato um uh pareto's long uh, work on on sociology is an attempt to give uh, an account of the role of non-logical um behavior um in uh in in social life and in the formation of social order um and so uh pareto is interested in uh dissecting um the variables um that together constitute uh, the non-logical aspects of human behavior and he has this kind of technical jargon of residues and derivations um but in a way i mean it's uh, uh i mean one, one one can see pareto as continuing um uh a discourse about the role of um, of the passions um, instituted uh, in, I suppose, uh, Renaissance moral philosophy, and continuing through into the Enlightenment and the work of Hume and others, um, and uh, Henderson, who is um, one of the great expo- expositors of Pareto, as I mentioned a moment ago, is himself very interested in drawing on um, sources in early modern political thought to kind of fill out Pareto's theory of the non-logical roots of social action. Um, 
And so um, there's an account of, of, of these um, fundamental instinctive sort of drives and passions that are central to human behavior. Um, uh, the way that Henderson reads Pareto is also that there's a kind of element of, although Henderson would have, would have uh, and did hate, hate this kind of idea, um, there was an element of a reception of Freudian theory in the idea that uh, agents in acting will try to portray their, uh, their actions as, as rational, but these are in fact nothing more than, than post hoc rationalizations or what Pareto calls derivations. And that's another, the, the, these derivations or rationalizations of fundamentally irrational behavior is another important part of Pareto's social theory as that is um, received and articulated by, in particular, Henderson, but also other members of the Pareto circle. And just a, a sort of footnote to that um, set of, 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 of pretty um, generic comments about, about Pareto's social thought. Um, it's interesting that Pareto's path to sociology, marked as it is by a deep engagement with um, essentially what we, what we think of now as um, microeconomics, um, and accounts of economic rationality, that path of Pareto's is in fact replicated um, by uh, the reception of, of Pareto uh, in the United States. And again, among thinkers like in particular Tucker Parsons, there is a recognition that um, formal or orthodox economics, the kind of economics practiced by the Austrian school, um, of of marginalists like Karl Menger, um, that this very this very formal account of rationality must be supplemented um, by a broader account of the role of values and um, various instinctual, perhaps even irrational forces in the making of social order. Precisely because it's become clear that um, you know the world doesn't work in the way that the um, the classical economists and then later the marginalists think that the world does. And so individual rationality must have a broader social basis. And it was believed that thinkers like Pareto um, had answers to what that broader basis might be. And so that's just a, a, a way of kind of sketching in the, the intellectual background of the Pareto circle um, in the reception of Pareto in the United States. Great. Thank you so much. Now, in the book, you're showing that um, this is actually linked in the development of the Pareto Circle is linked with discipline building within this interstitial academy at Harvard that you're showing. Now, you've mentioned already the Harvard biochemist Henderson, who led this circle and who was responsible for uh, kind of galvanizing interests in Pareto and creating this network around Pareto's work. An important development here and in the context of Henderson, and also um, something that happens early on here that we see having pretty profound ramifications throughout the later chapters of this story is the development of a case method as a pedagogical tool at Harvard. And this effectively brings in not only the specificity of the method of the case, which is going to continue to be important, but also the importance of pedagogy as a very explicit form of the way these social thinkers were working through ideas and were working through the work of people like Pareto. So can you talk a little bit about the case study or the, the case method, rather, as it's developed and the importance of this for, um, for what's happening at Harvard? Sure. Um, well, you know, finding this, um, the 
there is at, at Harvard from the 19th century, uh, the, um, the last third of the 19th century through to the present, really, a long tradition of the use of the case method um, across fields. I mean, it begins its life um, principally in the law school of Christopher Columbus Langdell as um, a, a pedagogical tool. Um, but interestingly, even for Langdell, um, the use of the case method to teach, um, I mean, in, in his own case, contract law, um, it wasn't just a pedagogical tool, right? It was also uh, in itself uh, for um for Langdell, a kind of epistemology, which is to say, one knew, one understood the law as a kind of organic growth through the study of just the right set of cases. So the case method begins with the Langdell. The method is taken up directly from um, uh, from the law school into the medical school. Um, uh, by uh, a figure called Walter Cannon, um, who is interested in um, the way, uh, in, in modes of, of pedagogy as they use in the law school and thinks that this will revolutionize the, the teaching of, of medicine. Goes into, into medicine. Henderson is, is himself exposed to the case method in the medical school. Um, and from there, Henderson takes it to the business school, back into the college. He passes the idea on to James Bryant Conan, who uses it as the basis for his famous famous course natural sciences for um on the history of the experimental sciences um and then eventually as i argue in the book it goes on to kuhn um, and, and informs if doesn't entirely account for kuhn's notion of the paradigm so that's really just a preliminary comment to to say that this case method is 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 really um it's a central feature of the harvard story i want to tell and it's one of the and as you say as you rightly say it's a it's a central strand um running through the book as a whole um but but what was interesting to me was um something that i've touched on in in discussing how langdell saw the case method which is uh that the, the case method um it wears many hats so on the one hand it is um seen as a very convenient and effective mode of pedagogy rather than you know uh, uh, taking a, a very didactic approach to teaching you know recitation reading out sections of textbooks and so on one encourages students to think in a somewhat socratic way by handling cases and that gives them an appreciation for a body of doctrine um, that isn't to be gathered in any other way it has this pedagogical function but increasingly from langdell onwards really it's also seen as a way of accessing um perhaps in indeed a preeminent way of accessing knowledge of um in the case of the Bretto circle um fundamental social laws henderson employs the case method in teaching what he calls concrete sociology which is his kind of um Pareto inspired view of how to teach sociology as essentially a kind of um applied a sort of clinical science um so it seems to uh in this case be also serving an epistemological role or it's a it's a form of inquiry as well as um as well as simply a form of pedagogy and it became rapidly clear to me as as um as I said, that the case method winds its way through several different facets of the development of the human sciences at Harvard. Um, and that this is one way in which that local practice-oriented story I wanted to tell, that way in which debates about the conceptual foundations of a discipline get tied up with institutional questions of, um, you know, 
the formation of uh, curricula, um, the teaching of particular disciplines or subfields and topics, um, the way in which those practice-oriented questions ought to inform our history of the social sciences. Um, and and so, so, so that was really key for me. And, and just a, a, a final remark on, on the importance of the case method here um, is that so it's not just that the case method can wear sort of several hats. It's it's as I as I say at a certain point in the book. I mean, it's um, it's a kind of theory of knowledge. It's a gloss on research practice, and it's a form of pedagogy all at once. Um, but given that this is a um, a a method, a form of pedagogy and of inquiry that has this um, long and established and well respected lineage running from the law school to um, to the medical school and on to the business school. It's, it's seen as central to a kind of professionalization. Those advocates of the social sciences at Harvard, particularly the new social sciences of anthropology, sociology, uh, social psychology, um, those people who are looking to establish their disciplines in an institution which is very hostile um, for certain reasons to these new um, social sciences. Um, the fact that the case method gets you professionals and is seen over a long historical period of time to get you professionals, as it were, um, means that it is used by institution builders um, I don't want to say entirely entirely strategically, um, but it's used by them to um, to help build disciplines. Um, the reason that I say that I don't th- I don't believe um, that there that there's a, just a purely strategic story to be told here about the use of a method which seems to uh, generate institutional recognition. Um, the reason I don't think that the story is is that straightforward is precisely because. This case method has has these different aspects, right? That it's that it that it's pedagogy, but it's also research practice. It's an epistemology. Um, it's a sort of unstable um, but immensely productive um, uh, method or conceptual scheme. And so, um, I don't think that there can be anything like a kind of you know, it, it can't be used fully instrumentally, but it clearly is very important to the formation of the social sciences um, at, at Harvard during the 20th century. And so and so that's the kind of key role that this idea of the case method plays in the book. Great. Now, after this um, this chapter that treats Henderson and the case method, and one of the, I'll just mention for listeners that one of the really helpful things here is that this chapter and the um, succeeding chapters put into practice the point that you're making about the relationship between epistemology and practice early in the book, and that is these chapters don't just state the case method was an important pedagogical tool, but really take us through the ways in which Henderson himself is using the sort of classic models and case books of Hippocrates in his own classes. So there's a, pedagogy comes in as a really important part of the argument and the content of the book on many, many different levels, and so it reinforces this larger point, I think, really nicely. So after this, there's another chapter that I'm not actually going to ask you too much about so that we can um, move to Quine and then ultimately get to Kuhn by the end of our time. But this is a chapter that I'll just again mention for listeners that gives a parallel case to the case of Henderson and the Pareto Circle that we just talked about, focusing on um, the discipline and rather disciplines, perhaps, of psychology at Harvard and the ways that operationism 
is developed um, by uh, the physicist Percy Williams Bridgman in particular, but then you show the later development of this as a way also to relate um, scientific concepts to scientific practices. And so the idea of operationism here, and I'm being very rough and ready here, um, but this is the meaning of a concept is equivalent to the actions habitually associated with the concept. So again, we see another context of the interstitial academy um, being a place for the working out in a different kind of disciplinary field at Harvard of these relationships between ideas and practice and the centrality of practices um, in the way social scientists are thinking about um, human beings and knowledge making in that context. So this actually brings us to the chapter and the setting that you mention is uh, perhaps the one piece that was retained from, I'm sure retained in a transformed version, but retained from the dissertation. And this is a close look at the discipline of philosophy at Harvard in this context. And in particular, a look at the way some Harvard philosophers, with Quine um, being kind of a focal point of this chapter, took what you call a self-referential turn in epistemology that maps onto and that tracks the kinds of turns that we saw in previous chapters with the Pareto Circle and with operations. Now, it focuses on the way that Quine actually takes up, engages with, and ultimately critiques the work of Carnap um, in the Harvard complex. So can you say just a little bit about that? Can you talk about here, um, how did Carnap's ideas become so central to Quine, and what in what way is that central to the story that you're telling about the engagement of philosophers, and in particular the Harvard philosophers, in this larger trend that you're showing in the book? Mm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, Carnap Aquine was nothing less than a mentor, really. Um, perhaps Quine's only mentor. Um, Quine, of course, is uh, a towering figure in 20th century analytical philosophy. Um, and Carnap, um, Rudolf Carnap, of course, was one of the uh, leading lights of the Vienna Circle of logical empiricists um, of the 1920s and 1930s. Um, Carnap himself, I mean, just as a side note, um, emigrates to the United States uh, in 1935 or 1936 um, and spends the rest of his career in the United States. Um, having fled as so many uh, intellectuals did um, the uh, onset of uh, fascism and Nazism in, uh, in in Central Europe in the 1930s. Um, but Quine, Quine um, has uh, a long entangled history with, with Carnap and um, many historians of logical empiricism, um, including not least your colleague Alan Richardson, have, have um, told uh, some very uh, important stories about um, the problems with Quine's um, uh, reception of Carnap's work, the way in which he reads the driving uh, ambitions and interests uh, of, of Carnap's work. Um, for, 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 for Alan um, and for a number of other historians of logical empiricism, um, Quine uh, misrepresents uh, Carnap's project and his turn towards um, Quine's turns to, uh, towards philosophical naturalism um, 
is for many uh, uh, an unhappy displacement of the fundamental and driving interests of the of the, of the, of the Vienna Circle and in, and in particular of of, of Carnap. Um, the story I try and tell in the chapter really is is one of um, discipleship, but then transformation. I mean, so in a way, I'm interested in trying to explain how it is that Quine comes to, as it were, misrepresent Carnap's uh, philosophical uh, program, um, and um, and I and really what I want to say, and this is where the chapter on Quine rejoins the rest of the book, that it's um, it's it's Quine's being drawn into the interstitial academy, um, into these sort of marginal um, or into or interstitial. Um, Kind of parts of the of the university um, that really de- determines the character of his reception and and in particular his attempt to um, to read Carnap as in a sense a kind of failed naturalist who doesn't appreciate how to be scientific about the conceptual foundations of the sciences in a way that Quine has learned to be in, thanks in part to his interaction with figures like B.F. Skinner and others in in the Interstitial Academy at Harvard um, and so. And so there's this, and and so there, there's a kind of key story um, for Quine. I think Carnap, Carnap's work, Carnap's attempt to produce um, an account of what Carnap calls the logical syntax of the language of science, or what is in a sense, in essence, um, an account of the logic of science. Um, it provides Quine with a philosophical vocation. Quine comes to Harvard um, as a brilliant young logician trained at Oberlin. And uh, Quine finds himself very much out of step with prevailing um, philosophical trends and interests at Harvard. Um, he does have some very important teachers, not least Clarence Irving Lewis. Um, but um, Quine is someone who's trained as a logician who wants to find more to do with philosophical logic than the pure work, as it were, in philosophy of logic that's being conducted by people like Henry Sheffer at Harvard and others. Um, Harvard's very strong in logic, but it's uh, in the 1930s when Quine goes there as a, to do his graduate work. But it's a very restricted conception of logic. Quine wants to get to philosophy, but he in fact doesn't really have much of a traditional philosophical education. Um, and of course, he takes graduate courses and on a very compressed schedule. I mean, he's basically a graduate student for 18 months. I mean, this is... This is amazing. It's it's one of the the kind of downsides of of, of uh, being a scholar of um, extremely smart people is you exactly are able to see all of these uh, markers of a academic career that tend to be a struggle for for oneself. Um, but Quine um, takes eighteen months to write a PhD and, and breeze through um, three or four courses in in philosophy. But that's as much of a philosophical education that he gets. So he's basically what I say. Um, He's a clever logician who even post-PhD is looking for a way to become a philosopher, to speak to broader philosophical um, concerns and interests. Quine is elected to uh, what is, for me, a preeminent example of the Interstitial Academy, and that's the Harvard Society of Fellows, which is founded in 1933. Quine is in the first generation of fellows, um, a cohort that includes the psychologist B.F. Skinner, um, in fact. And Quine, Quine um, uh, just before he joins the society, um, goes to Europe, studies with uh, Rudolf Carnap in Prague, gives a paper to the Vienna Circle, which is just then on the brink of disintegrating, but is still meeting in Vienna, um, speaks to uh, Alfred Tarski, um, 
in Warsaw, the uh, great Polish logician, um, and sees in Carnap's work um, and Carnap's work on the logical syntax of science a way of combining his skills in logic with broader questions or uh, to speak to broader questions in epistemology and even metaphysics. Um, and so Quine goes back to the United States, goes into the, into the Society of Fellows and becomes an important conduit for the work of Carnap and the logical empiricists and really becomes a kind of spokesman for Carnap. Um, but what's interesting is um, he comes to see um, Carnap, not entirely uh, incorrectly, but certainly not in a way that entirely captures the essence of Carnap's project. But he comes to see Carnap as someone interested in using the techniques of science um, and uh, the methods of science to understand the generation of scientific knowledge itself. So the kind of term that's that's used um, at the time quite often is the science of science. How can we have a science of science? And also Quine's idea is that what Carnap shows is that philosophy is the discipline um, that uh, gives the science of science, that uses the findings of and the methods of the natural and mathematical sciences to give an account of the conceptual foundations of the sciences themselves. Um, but Quine thinks that um, Carnap uh, is not um, as engaged with currents in um as many important currents in the sciences, particularly in psychology, uh, as he needs to be. And so um, Quine gradually develops a kind of, or he uses Carnap really as a kind of stalking horse for his own project, um, which involves this more, th- apparently, at least according to Quine, a more thoroughgoing attempt to give an empirical scientific account of the generation of scientific knowledge. Um, and what's striking about this enterprise is, I mean, firstly, you know, Kuhn is in close dialogue with Skinner, who's an old friend, P.F. Skinner, who's an old friend, um, is thanks to the Society of Fellows. Um, Quine is drawn into various other forums of the Interstitial Academy um, and comes to see this attempt to, to create a science of science as a kind of collaborative enterprise. Um, but that but the, um, Quine develops his his philosophical naturalism within the confines of of the Harvard complex and not, as I argue in the book, in the Department of Philosophy, which remains in large part quite hostile to these new um, research programs emerging from Europe in, in these various forms of scientific philosophy. Um, and so Quine, in order to pursue his interest in the work of Carnap and to develop this project, is almost forced uh, to, to navigate his way through the interstitial academy. And then it's, it's only, and I mean, this is just a kind of postscript, um, something I only touch on briefly in the book, but it's only in the 1950s, really, that the, the analytical revolution happens in philosophy and what's previously a marginal approach becomes kind of dominant and Quine becomes this kind of towering figure in analytical philosophy. Um, but in any case, it seemed to me that, um, just to bring to bring this rather long uh, comment to a close, um, it seemed to me that one important way of making sense of the genesis of um, Quine's project is to see how he uh, makes sense of and tries to build on Carnap's philosophy um within uh the confines of the the interstitial academy 
Great. Now, as we move to the last couple of chapters of the book, we move to the decades after World War II, and we see what happens in the rapid departmentalization of parts of the interstitial academy at Harvard in the next chapter. And I'll just sort of mention for listeners, this chapter called The Levelers focuses on a group of mid-19, a group of young non-tenured faculty in the mid-1930s who are really trying to collectively come up with a shared conceptual framework for a project um, of the behavioral sciences, right? And you're you're showing here, among other things, um, the ways that a department of social relations emerges out of this context of the interstitial academy, the ways that um, some of the members of and people related to this department of social relations and this group of faculty or attempt to make theorizing seem like a legitimate professional activity on par with uh, observable scientific practice, and ultimately how this project fails to crystallize. And so this is a really interesting case study that looks at the emergence of a kind of department of um, interstitial members and what happens uh, as a result of that. Which brings us finally, um, finally to Kuhn. So we started with Kuhn. Now finally, we're getting in chapter six to the chapter that looks at um, the career and work of Thomas Kuhn and really revises, I think, the way readers will think about this classic work of Kuhn, the structure of scientific revolutions. Now, among um, other things, this chapter I'll mention gives a really nice way to think about the history of the emergence of the history of science um, at Harvard and the the sort of history of that department, which had its roots in one of Conant's, uh, or rather one of Kuhn's advisors or mentors, um, Conant. And you're showing here um, the really the emergence of a history of science and a pedagogy of the history of science at Harvard as part of this larger set of issues that you're looking at. Now, because I don't want to keep you for two hours, <laughs> so because um, uh, I definitely, though, do want to get to what, for me, um, was conceptually at the very heart of this book, I wonder if you could kind of wrap up this larger story by saying something about what seems to me to be one of the major contributions of this chapter and of the book, which is the demonstration of the importance of pedagogy to the way Kuhn was thinking about the history of science and the way that that shaped ultimately what happened in the structure of scientific revolutions. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, that that for me really is the kind of... um core of the book and it's one reason why i wanted to 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 conclude with with kuhn um the, the account that i i try to um of kuhn's development is i mean it really centers on uh an attempt to to remind um us that kuhn began his career as someone deeply interested in pedagogical questions. And, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of our interview, I was uh, very much inspired by the work of figures like, um, in particular, David Kaiser, Catherine Alesco, people who've written on pedagogy and practices of science. Um, and I was sort of thrilled in a way to see that this, uh, some of this approach um, and the, the emphasis upon pedagogy um, as a way into studying the history of epistemology really um, could uh, have could have could um, promise insights for the study of, of Kuhn himself um, and so and so what I do in the book really is show that from from 1946 onwards um, 
when, uh, excuse me, 1945, when Kuhn is asked to write a response on behalf of, as it were, or as a representative of Harvard's alumni, a response to um, the uh, so-called Red Book, the Harvard Report on General Education in a Free Society. Um, uh, that that famous book, uh, treatise of liberal pedagogy, um, uh, produced uh, in 1945. Kuhn is interested in, I mean, first of all, the question of how to teach science to laypersons, uh, and in particular, I mean, in, in the Harvard context, how to teach science to those who won't be concentrating to use the Harvard lingo or majoring in the sciences themselves. Um, and Kuhn recognized that, look, um, making undergraduates who aren't going to be concentrating in any kind of natural mathematical science, making them take a kind of, you know, intro to, um, you know, solid state physics, or whatever, is not going to be the way to teach them or to give them a feel for what Conan liked to call the tactics and strategies of science, right? So um, you need a way of teaching science to those who, who might need some grasp because there'll be, you know, people holding the purse strings or politicians one day who'll have to uh, engage scientists. But nonetheless, they can't themselves be trained as scientists. How do you do that? Kuhn's really is very much interested in, in this question, as is his as is his mental opponent. Um, and so, Kuhn plays around a lot with this idea. The case method, thanks to Conan, becomes the way in which the history. Uh, of the, of the experimental sciences is, is taught. But this case method approach is designed explicitly for Conant to give non-scientists, these undergraduates who aren't concentrating in science, a sense for the tactics and strategies of science. Kuhn becomes interested in these ideas, plays around with the contrasting textbook and um, case method pedagogies, plays around with these ideas, while at the same time trying to develop an account of um, the social basis of scientific knowledge, really, which is a question that figures like Robert Merton, of course, are taking up at around about the same time. But Kuhn kind of wants to develop his own take. And uh, just to, you know, I mean, not, not to talk for too long. So there's a kind of a narrative I give of Kuhn's intellectual evolution over the 1950s in which I say, look, he starts by... Um, Keeping these, these these two wings of his work, this interest in pedagogy and general education uh, in science, and then his interest in um, uh, the historical and social foundations of scientific knowledge kind of separate. Um, and then what I suggest is um, in his attempt to solve uh, problems uh, that he finds in drafting structure, I mean, he struggles for a long time. He, he first starts writing outlines for the book in the late 1940s, right? He doesn't publish it until 62. And he's playing around with ways of, like, how do you account for the progressive character of the sciences? Like, how are they able to um, formulate seemingly stable bodies of knowledge that persist for fairly long periods of time? And Kuhn, for a long time, says it's consensus. There's some kind of sociological underpinning to the possibility of scientific knowledge and its consensus. Uh, and it's consensus in particular on, on rules, how to conduct an inquiry, what counts as a uh, successful solution of problem, and so on. Then he recognises that consensus on rules is not going to do that kind of work. And it's at that moment, which really happens very, very late in the drafting process of structure, maybe around 61, that I say he recognises that um, the, the the kind of case approach, which hitherto had been used only to teach the tactics and strategy of science to non-scientists, also explains very well 
how scientists themselves learn um, how to solve uh, problems and what counts as a legitimate as a legitimate solution to a problem, and therefore why their judgments can converge uh, so well as they do in normal science. Right. So my suggestion there is that um, although the natural assumption would be and Kuhn inclines us to believe this that it's um wittgenstein's ideas and the philosophical investigations um that uh lead him to this concept of the paradigm in fact it's kind of ambient for him thanks to the case of harvard so kuhn ends up bringing together his kind of two sets of um scholarly interests and coming up with the kind of uh, theoretical structure of structure of scientific revolutions Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. There's so much about the book that we didn't have a chance to get to, um, just a ton of stuff in all of the chapters. And certainly there are some chapters that we didn't have a chance to, um, to really talk about in too much depth in the first place. Is there anything in particular about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to point out for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Sure. You know, I, You've covered um, most of the bases, really. I mean, something perhaps I would just want to underscore is um, I have uh, a line in the prologue, um, which I, I follow up in the in, in the epilogue, in, in the kind of concluding part of the book, which is, I, I hope, um, in addition to, to giving uh, what I hope is a sort of interesting history, um, that... Um, the, the book can contribute to an erosion of what I think is of as a very unhelpful way of thinking about the um, possibilities for the development of the human sciences in our own contemporary moment, which is this kind of sharp division between positivist or formalist approaches and interpretivist or hermeneutic uh, approaches to the study of human behavior. Um, scientific versus humanist, you know, to put that in a very sort of broad way. Um, and it seems to me that, that so much of contemporary discussion is uh, about the kind of, about the human sciences as a field of, of possibilities for inquiry um, is, is shaped by these binaries. And it seems to me um, unhelpful strategically to think in that way. But also what I hope to show in the book is that if we look at what seems to be the exact moment where there is, you know, a revolt against positivism, there's a positivist culture in the social sciences and it's overthrown by Kuhn, essentially. Um, in fact, uh, the history uh, is much more complex and the continuities um, are such that the story about positivism succeeded by post-positivism uh, isn't a helpful one. Um, it's not one that practicing social scientists ought to tell themselves. And I realize that as an historian, as it were, I mean, I, I can't force a kind of a normative point and I wouldn't want to. But it seems to me that at least in this one case, um, attending more closely to the recent history of debates about the scientific or just general epistemic character of knowledge in the social sciences can... Um, remove certain limitations on our imaginations of what kinds of um, knowledge-making practices are possible in those fields. Um, so I'd, I'd like to think that, uh, that at the very least, um, the, the book might help to kind of stimulate a more open-ended debate about uh, that topic. Great. And now that the book is out, and congratulations, it's a fantastic book, as I, I'm sure came out in the course of our discussion, and I'll just say it explicitly if I haven't made that absolutely clear already. Now that this fantastic book is out, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you at the moment? 
Sure. Well, um, I have been moving in uh, something of a different direction from uh, the project uh, I pursued in working knowledge. And um, so I am interested in uh, actually the American Constitution uh, in the era between the New Deal and the Cold War. Um, And in particular, I'm interested in uh, rewriting or rethinking the history of American political thought in this period um, through the lens of um, emergency politics. And all I'd say there, and I I won't talk about this for too long, is that um, a good deal of the legislation of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, um, economic legislation and so forth, um, as well as... um, uh, various uh, statutes and policies um, established during World War II were passed under presidential powers. Um, these were emergency measures that became permanent features uh, of American politics. Um, and I'm struck by how the politics of emergency um, became central to the practice of American politics in, in the 20th century at the same time that the rhetoric and uh, uh, practices of liberal politics and um, and indeed also human rights are becoming increasingly central. And that seems in a sense like a sort of paradox that on the one hand you have the development of a kind of uh, democratic form of dictatorship and on the other the rise of um, liberalism of a certain kind, of, of, of a kind of welfare state kind after World War II. Um, and uh, I want to try and explain that. And so I, I hope the next project um, will will focus on that. And it, it will really be a study in American uh, political thought. So somewhat different from uh, working knowledge. Well, thank you again so much for making the time. It's really been a pleasure and good luck with the next project. Thank you very much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.